0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. If you would, turn your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 33. We finished up most of this. In fact, one of the last things we covered last week was who can dwell with a pure and holy God? Um, Isaiah puts it, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? And the answer to that was put in multiple phrases, he who walks righteously, he who speaks uprightly, he who has no oppressive gain, doesn't take bribes, is not complicit in bloodshed, and uh, really if you summarize all of those things, the answer to that question is those who reflect the character and righteousness of God. And so... If you think about it, think about our little town of Palm Bay, and if instead of whoever the current mayor is, and I don't keep track of all that much, so I don't know who the person is, but let's say all of a sudden he's replaced with our Lord Jesus Christ, How comfortable would you be going down to City Hall and going to see the new mayor? When you know he knows everything, he sees everything, he's pure, holy, righteousness. That's discomforting, I think, to us because we're not that. And so the answer that Isaiah gives is someone who reflects the righteousness and character of God. And um, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that's not us. And so when Messiah rules and reigns, there's going to be, I think, some apprehension on some when they feel that they need or when they're summoned. To Jerusalem to stand before the king and so that's where we left off and so if you look in your Bibles at Isaiah 33 verse 17 we're just going to read to the end of the chapter and kind of cover that quickly and then then get into chapters 34 and 35 So Isaiah 33, starting in verse 17, it says, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is far off. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of stammering tongue, that thou canst not understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be with us, a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, nor shall gallant ships pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us, thy tackings are loosed. I could not well strengthen their mass, they could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided, The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. And so this last portion of Isaiah 33, we covered parts of it a little bit. I want us to look at a couple of things. If you go back to verse 17... And some of this was kind of sparked because of our pastor teaching hermeneutics. I know there's several in the class here that have been taking that. And he told a fish story uh, Tuesday night, which had to do with studying a fish. And the more you study it, the more things you see. Um, And that's true of Scripture as you study it, as you go back and read it again. You see different things. And so, one of the things that I thought was interesting is it focuses on, and we talked about this the king. And there's actually a progression from chapter 32, verse 1. It talks about a king. And here it talks about the king, the king in his beauty. And there were phrases in each one of the next four verses that kind of jumped out at me this time. The first phrase was, thine eyes shall see the king. And so Isaiah is telling them in this final solution, this real true solution to all of their problems, he's saying to them, thine eyes shall see the king. And I thought it was interesting, it Ends with, in his beauty. I have never seen a living king. I've seen people on TV. um, But never been in the presence of a president or a king. But I imagine for the people in Isaiah's day to hear, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. That was something that they never dreamed of. Uh, They probably didn't get, most of them didn't get to see the king. And so the first phrase that I thought was interesting is, Thine eyes shall see. And then the second phrase is in verse 18. It says, Thy heart shall meditate. What's their heart going to meditate on? We talked about it last time. Okay, use the word terror. And then it then it says who's the scribe, who's the receiver, where's he that counted that? I think if you put those together what you come up with is their hearts going to meditate on the terrors of war. And it's going to be a war that they don't participate in because Messiah is going to save them. And so Isaiah is telling them You're going to see the king in his beauty. Your heart's going to meditate on the terrors of war. And then it goes on in the next verse. What's going to happen? What are they going to see in verse 19? Or not see, I guess I should say. Okay, the fierce people. And for Isaiah's day, that would probably be the Assyrians. Um, They would be focused on, you know, this Assyrian army that they think is going to come and totally annihilate them. And Isaiah says, you're not going to see them. That's part of God's salvation is they're not going to see their enemies. And, And so if this is looking at the future eschatology of Christ's second coming... They're not going to see these foreign nations come in that are their enemies and defeat them. And then the last verse focuses, or the the last one that I noticed, focuses their attention on Zion. It says, Look upon Zion. And it says, Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. And it talks about a ship. And so that then gets us into what is, in my study of this, the the final aspects of this solution, this Messiah that is going to come and save them. And that is, the Lord becomes our Lord. There's a whole series of phrases from here to the end of the chapter It starts in verse 21. It says, but there. But there. There's a transition. It's a transition from the focus being on what they're going to see to what God's going to do and their response to it. It says, the glorious Lord will be unto us. and So, the focus becomes... On two things, our glorious Lord and us, and in the us here, it's the Jewish people. And so I phrased it, the Lord, and we can oftentimes refer to Jesus as a Savior, the Savior, but more importantly is when we say he's our Savior, And so you look at this and there's a whole series of things that are mentioned about Messiah, about Jesus, about the coming king, and he's going to become their king. And so what are the phrases that show that he's no longer just a king, he's no longer just the king, but he's Their king. What do you see in this passage? These phrases.
1: You see in 22, it says, Our judge, our lawgiver.
0: Okay, so starting out at the beginning portion, it mentions a ship. There's a lot of debate in the commentaries about what the ship is, but notice it says, The glorious Lord will be unto us a broad river, a place where these ships can't go. He's going to be their protection, and He's going to be their peace. And as you look around in the world today, and we hear it seems like every other day there's new wars breaking out, this king, their king, is going to be their peace and protection. And then, like Wayne said, he's going to be their judge and their lawgiver. And I actually think there's something to be said about the sequence that these are in. I think many times before we accept a Savior, our Savior, we have to realize our need. And our need comes by understanding that there's a judge and that there's a law that we have violated. And that if the judge were to really weigh in the balances what's happened, what we have done in either thought, word, or deed, we would be condemned and found guilty. And so it moves from judge to lawgiver to what else? King. To king. And so this progression went from 32 verse 1 that said a king to the king who they'll see in his beauty in verse 17 to now he's their king, our king. What else do we see about Messiah and the fact that he is no longer just the king But he's their king. Oh, yeah, I heard over here. He will save us. Okay, and so the Lord is our Savior. That's what the Jewish people would say. That's what you and I would say as His church, His people. What else? Okay, definitely there will be freedom in him. It mentions another ship that has um, a sail that can't be spread and various things, and I think many attribute that to the, the Jewish people. But there's something else that this king that is their king, he will be our king, There's something else that he's going to do. What else is it he's going to do? Okay. We'll go to one in between. The Lord is our great physician. Notice it says the inhabitant shall not say I'm sick. And so this king that is their king is also going to be their great physician. And I think some of us can appreciate that um, maybe a little more than others but I think at this age most of us can think of ailments and would rejoice to have our great physician heal us Um, and so he's our great physician and then the last one is he's our merciful and forgiving savior and for those that In the hermeneutics class, one of the things that Pastor Caleb pointed out this past week is the idea of highlighting or underlining or doing various things uh, in your Bible. If you're like me, I have a Bible that I had since the 70s. And yes, I really am that old. Um, And I had made lots of notes in the very small margins There's just one problem. I can't read them anymore because of one or two, well, it could be several reasons. One is my eyes aren't what they used to be, but two, ink fades. As you hold the edges, it would fade. And then pencil tends to just kind of almost erase. And so several in here I've seen have, you know, the the new tablets with the Bible on it, and several have the normal style, and there's nothing wrong with either one. I went to the tablet because then I can read my notes. Yeah, they're not going to disappear on me. And one of the things that he had pointed out Tuesday night was the idea of highlighting or underlining different phrases. And so I thought you might find it interesting In Isaiah 33, one of the things I mentioned is I like to highlight or underline preferably over highlighting things that have to do with God in purple because of his majesty. And so you notice here I have the glorious Lord will be unto us. I have that highlighted in purple. And then all the different things about our judge, our lawgiver, our king. I have each of those phrases highlighted in purple. But when we get to he will save us, I have it highlighted in red. Why would I highlight it in red or underline it in red? The blood. blood. It's through his blood that he shed on the cross that we're redeemed. And the forgiveness of iniquity down at the bottom. And so... I just thought for those that are taking the class, I'd encourage you, whether you use a paper copy, um, just recognize some of the drawbacks over time is, you know, it may lose some of the ink, it may, you know, kind of fade or whatever. But I really like, on using the tablet, the fact that I can use different colors. You know, this way the colors kind of jump out at me. And notice I have Our King you know, actually highlighted instead of underlined in green, because when I saw that progression of a king, the king, our king, I highlighted each of those in green to remind myself that there is that progression. When we think of Jesus as our savior, he started out as well, maybe he's someone's savior, a savior. And then we start to realize he's the only Savior. And then when we accept him as our Savior, it becomes personal. And so I just thought you might find some of that interesting. And hopefully it encourages you as you go through to, to find a scheme that you like to be able to study the Bible and to to kind of draw out some of the more interesting parts of it um, in some manner, whether it's this or something else. So that brings us to chapter 34 and 35. 34 and 35 are relatively short. They really need to be taken together. We have been going through Isaiah, and this has been the outline that I've been presenting to you, and the very last bullet on here is our chapter 34 and 35. We've covered 32 and 33, which was part of the woes, and then at the end, Isaiah is telling them the true solution to their problems wasn't to trust all the nations around them. It was to trust Messiah, to trust God. And that's been the theme that he's been working on the whole time is trust God. Um, I think whether he would say it louder or whether he would say, please trust God, anything he could do to get them to stop trusting in their own resources and trusting the people around them, he wants them to trust God. And so in chapter 24, it talks about the whole world and we covered some of that before here it's kind of focused again back on the whole world let's read chapter 34 and 35 and then we'll we'll start to to go through that come ye excuse me come near ye nations to hear and hearken ye people let the earth hear all that is therein the world and all the things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their host shall fall down, as the leaf falleth off the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with blood of the lambs and goats and fat of the kidneys of rams for the Lord hath the sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom and the unicorn shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust shall be made fat with fatness for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of Recompenses for the controversy of Zion. The streams thereof shall be turned to pitch, and the dust thereof to brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch, and and it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste None shall pass through it forever and ever, but the cormorant and the bitten, or bittern shall possess it. The owl also, and the raven shall dwell in it, and he sh- shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all our princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in her palaces and nettles and branches in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be an habitation of dragons and a a court for owls. The wild beast of the desert shall meet with the wild beast of the island. And the satire shall cry to his fellow. And the screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There shall be a great owl There shall the great owl make her nest, and lay, and hatch, and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. Seek ye out the book of the Lord, and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. And he hath cast the lot for them, and his hand shall, hath divided it unto them by line, and they shall possess it forever, for generation to generation shall they dwell therein. The wilderness, the solitary place, shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose, it shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice even with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as the heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Even parched ground shall become a pool, thirsty land, springs of water. And the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall the grass with weeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and away, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring man, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon, and it shall be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs, and everlasting joy upon their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's kind of an interesting contrast in these two chapters. The two chapters describe the final wrath, the final defeat of the enemies of Israel, those that oppose God. And then the second chapter describes Zion restored. And so in 34, you see a productive land turned to desert. If you think about it, This world and what we see today is backwards or upside down. It's the exact opposite of what it should be. Today, Gentiles control and rule and reign over much of what happens in Jerusalem. When Messiah comes, it's going to be the other way around. Messiah, our Savior, the Jews' king, they will claim him as their king. He's going to rule and reign, and everything is going to emanate out of Jerusalem. And so chapter 35, what was a desert, which is pretty much the land of Israel, if you look at pictures, um... It doesn't look like this wonderful, blossoming, um, just gorgeous, green, fruitful plains and mountains. Nothing like what we have here in the United States unless you go to the desert. And you see pictures and it's all dry and parched and and just... um, you would call it a dry and thirsty land. Well, all of that's going to be reversed. And I got to thinking, we see key events in the future because of what God has given us in His Word in the New Testament. There's a whole bunch of key events here that we could could look at, but you know, some of the key ones I think many of us would like to see the rapture happen, especially as we see this world get worse and worse. And that's when I believe God's going to remove his Holy Spirit as it has operated in the church age. Uh, I think it's going to revert back to how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. And when that happens, then what you're going to find is the Antichrist is going to take power, and the tribulation period starts. Now, the tribulation period is not for the church. The church, I believe, and our church teaches, our pastors do, it's going to be removed through the rapture. What is that seven-year period called the tribulation period for? For Israel, it's for the Jews. It is the time in which God is is working in their heart to bring them to a place where they accept their Messiah. And so there's going to be seven years. And some of what I think Isaiah is talking about is probably comprehended in that seven years. And then we have the second coming when Christ comes back to rule and reign. He brings his church with him. And that will then start the millennial period where Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just kind of ponder and think about that. If Jesus comes with his church to rule and reign then there's going to be a bunch of us running around with glorified bodies where sin is no longer in any way an issue for us. And then there's going to be those that come through the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation, those that, and and there'll be people from all nations that enter into the millennium, but they'll all be saved through that judgment where they enter in it's much like Noah and the flood everyone's destroyed that is not going to follow after God and so everyone that comes after the flood starts out as believing God and following God well that's how it's going to be in the millennium only it's going to include all the nations and that's that's kind of I don't know about a head-scratching thing for me. It's like, wow, how how do those people get to know their Savior to enter into the millennium? But going into the millennium, you're going to have two, pe- two groups of people going around on the earth. You're going to have those of us with glorified bodies that come back with Christ, and you're going to have ones with regular fleshly bodies like you and I have from all the nations. And so those are kind of the key events that we know from our New Testament. And here's a picture of some of that. Um, This comes from Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice. Um, I kind of like pictures. I can kind of glean a lot more and kind of put that together. And they, they show the scriptures that they tie to but. This part here that I've put a red box around, I believe that's the future eschalage... I'm not saying it right. Future events that uh, the Bible tells us about that Isaiah kind of just takes this big, broad brushstroke and says, (coughs) all these things. And so looking back now at... The passage that we just read, 34 and 35, notice in chapter 1, and by the way, there's worldwide destruction that we covered in chapter 24, I think that's being repeated here in this chapter, where the earth is empty and made waste, Um, no one escapes, God's spoken it so it's sure that it's going to happen And the people have defiled the earth by sin. And few are left after God's judgment. I think the vast majority are destroyed when Messiah comes. And there are a few that go into it. And so at the beginning of this, verse 1, it says, Come near. And it mentions ye nations, ye people, the earth, all that is there. And so the world and the earth is summons. And what are they supposed to do? Listen, listen hear, hearken. And so the first thing that's brought out is they're to listen. I don't know about you, but every so often someone uses the expression, God gave us one mouth and two ears for a reason. We should listen twice as much as, as we speak. It doesn't always happen that way, but uh, there's some truth to that. And so here, God's calling them, and he mentions the world and all the things that come forth in it. And I think many of us think when we hear the word, the world, we think of 1 John two fifteen through 17, where it says, "'Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world.'" If a man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Everything that's being summoned in chapter 34 has to do with the world. All the things we just talked about here. And they're called before God to listen. And he basically says to them, the indignation of God, of the Lord, is upon all the nations, upon their armies. And I think of the battle of Armageddon when it mentions this. Um, Now, if that's different than what Isaiah had in mind, it's just the thing where... To me, they're all called together. And it mentions that God's going to destroy them, that there's judgment that's being proclaimed. It says, He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. And so there's armies there, and their armies are destroyed, and judgment is proclaimed. And when those armies are destroyed... I think it could very easily be Revelation 19 being fulfilled. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as the flame of fire on the head of many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, And he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth forth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so, I'm not saying it definitively is, but as we look at eschatology, we get some of the finer details in especially the book of Revelation. Daniel gives us some, Matthew 24. When I read this, and it talks about all the armies coming together, that's the passage that came to mind when Jesus comes back at the second coming, because it says he utterly destroyed them and delivered them. It mentions then that many are slain. And again, the many there slain could very easily be Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20 It says, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one, and like unto the Son of Man, having his head with a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat in the cloud, "Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe." And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. I'm going to skip down a little bit. In verse 19, it says, The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden down without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even to horses' bridles, by the space of a 1,600 furlongs. And so when you read this passage in Isaiah, it talks about the armies being destroyed. It talks about there being a great number that are are slain. Um, And then in verse 4, it talks about the heavens being dissolved. And again, we have... Passages that talk about the heavens being dissolved. The heavens are impacted. Revelation 21.1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 13 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now skip down. It says, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be on fire and be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we look, we according to his promise, look for a new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so, I think in Isaiah's description, in fact, um, sometimes outside of class people talk with me, and John and I were talking about this. Isaiah seems to be one of the earliest recordings of what God's going to do in future events. And he doesn't give us all the detail that we get in like Revelation and some of the other books of the Bible, but he gives us kind of these broad picture where he's just kind of lumping it all together from the tribulation all the way to the time after the millennium when the earth is dissolved and there's going to be a new heaven, and new earth. And so Isaiah has described these things here. He's basically called the world to come and listen. And he's proclaiming judgment. He's telling them all the armies of the world are going to be destroyed. There's going to be many people slain. And ultimately, even the heavens are going to be even the heavens are going to be dissolved and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth, but he doesn't describe the new heaven and new earth. After he does that as kind of an introduction, he's got our attention, he's basically said, here's what's going to happen to the enemies of Israel. He hasn't described it quite that way, but that's the idea that he's communicated he then basically tells us about Edom. Why do you think Edom is singled out here? First of all, let's back up the bus a little bit. Who is Edom? Okay, Esau's descendants. Do they get along good with um, Jacob's descendants? Not at all. And so in many ways, Edom represents all the nations and enemies of Israel that have intense hatred for Israel. And so God singles them out and He starts out saying that His sword, if you look in verse 5, His sword is going to be coming down on Edom. And so Edom is representative of all the enemies of Israel. And God has highlighted the fact that he's going to bring his sword down upon them. And so, as we mentioned here, there's this final judgment, this final time that God is going to deal with the enemies of Israel before he restores Zion, before he restores them. He also describes it as a sacrifice. If you look in verse 6, the Lord hath a sacrifice in Bozrah. Bozrah. That was a chief city in Edom. And I get a little glazed eyes when you start talking about sacrifices and things. And it's not that I want to, it's just that I don't relate. And the reason I don't relate is because Jesus has been made the one sacrifice once for all. And we don't practice the sacrificial system. It all points to Jesus and him dying on the cross so that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. But when he starts talking about the sacrifice here, I think some of that is to illustrate the severity of God's judgment that's going to come down upon these nations. And having never butchered an animal, having never been a part of what the sacrificial system is, I stand before you and say, I'm pretty clueless. But to me, the description is fairly horrific. Okay, and he talks about the blood of the animals. He talks about you know, them being soaked in blood and, and then the dust having their fat and fatness. Um, it's a pretty descriptive scene, especially for someone that probably has been involved in a sacrifice. Um, So I I feel a little bit inadequate on some of that. But the key is that, David, thank you.
1: When we talk about these cities and those situations, I feel a sense of detachment. Those things are going to take place over there. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take place after I've gone to heaven.
0: That's true. And I shouldn't be
1: disattached because if you get done with chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Revelation, you quickly see that half of the world's 8 billion people are lying in the street dead. Now, who are those people? my relatives, family members. And and, and I understand heaven, and I understand I'm going there. And I understand I'm going there when it's God's time. But right now, now, I say this to get the emphasis. I'm not concerned about heaven. I'm not concerned about going to heaven. Because if I go to heaven at 1 o'clock this afternoon, because the rapture takes place, in less than two years, there will be 4 billion people dead on this planet. And I know a lot of them by name. And so my concern is that they go with me. I mean, I understand heaven. I understand how we as Baptists think. But I don't, I'm not disattached from all of this. That, that's going to happen. It's the people that are living today that I can name right now who if the rapture comes at one o'clock they won't be with me and they will go through all of this judgment.
0: Yeah. David brings it really back to where we live today because As we read this, that's in the future. It's going to happen. But between now and then, the question is, what's going to happen to people you and I know and love? Friends, family, various others that don't know Jesus. Some may die without a Savior, If the rapture happens, some will be left here because they don't know Jesus. Um, One of the things that I think is very important as we study these books and as we consider these things is it ought to stir our heart to see people saved around us. And so I appreciate him bringing that up. Yes, ma'am. What
1: we need to do is to get busy with this people. Mm-hmm. I just lost a brother. Well, sometimes, as the Bible says, some are predestined. I have a brother that just died. I found him dead, but for years I've been trying to witness to him. He just drank himself Yo,
0: okay. You know, we're going to take a, a brief <laughs> rabbit trail here. How do people get saved? Okay. The Holy Spirit, the grace of God. Okay. We have a responsibility to share. But I've seen way too many people aggressively try to share and they've never taken time to prepare. And I'm not talking about their ability to communicate the gospel, I'm talking about their talking to God about their friends and family and loved ones is salvation something that we can make happen not at all I think many of us may know the song it took a miracle took a miracle to put the stars in space took a miracle to put the heavens in place but when God saved my soul It took a miracle of love and grace. I want to encourage all of us, as we have started to look at the future, and I like the reminder, as we consider where we are today, we aren't at this point. It's sometime in the future, and yes, in some ways we become detached from it, but what we're not detached from is friends and family, neighbors that don't know Christ. And some of them we love pretty dearly. And what we need to do is we need to make sure, um, in fact, I hesitate to say this, but I think it's worth saying. When we come together, our friends, the people we know the closest are the people we bring up on prayer requests, and usually it's people that are having health problems at our age. There's nothing wrong with that. But one of the most convicting things I remember hearing was Adrian Rogers made the comment, and I quoted it, and I'm going to butcher it paraphrasing it. He said, we Christians spend more time keeping saints out of heaven than we do praying to keep sinners out of hell. I hope, if you don't remember anything else about the stuff that we've covered in Isaiah today, I hope it challenges your heart because, yes, I agree with David. It's distant, but my neighbors aren't. My family that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, they're not. And so I can't save them. At times, I should speak up, and maybe I'm a little too reserved, and maybe you're a little too bold. But the one thing that I can tell you is it doesn't depend on us. It depends on them being a trophy of God's mercy and grace. And that happens by you and I praying for him. And so I hope the end of this hasn't been too sobering and too, you know, discomforting. But if it discomforts us to where we pray more for our lost friends and neighbors, then it's worth it. And so I want to encourage you as friends. As fellow believers, let's spend more time praying to keep sinners out of uh, of hell, get them into heaven, the other way. And so, as you think about this, next week we'll try and finish up chapters 34 and 35, but try to spend more time praying to see your loved ones, whether it's family or friends, um, we have some neighbors that I've been praying for that have been so kind to us as I've went through my health problems. And I'd like to see them saved. And I'd appreciate you praying for them. you know. And there's others that you probably want us as a class to be praying for. But let's make that, for this coming year, one of our major focuses is to see... Friends and family that are unsaved come to know Jesus as their Savior, just like we call him our Savior. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have been the one that we seek to point to through the lesson. We want to point people to Jesus. Father, as we consider those around us that are lost and don't know Jesus. Father, I pray you would burden our hearts that we might be more diligent in seeking your face and asking you to make them a trophy of your grace. Father, we pray for the service that follows. We pray that we would exalt Christ highly. That we would honor and worship him because of the great things he's done to redeem us. We pray for Pastor Aaron and pray that you would put the message on his heart, give him power to, to proclaim it with the Holy Spirit's guidance. So we pray you'd bless the time that we've recently finished as well as
1: the time that we're going into. In Jesus' name, amen.